0: Partially Examined Life Philosophy Podcast Part 1 episodes are designed to be self-contained, fully satisfying experiences in themselves. But for hardcore philosophy fans, we record for another hour or so to release behind our various paywalls to folks that pitch in to help us make this show. What you're about to hear is a preview of one of these Part 2 episodes. We hope you enjoy it. This is the Partially Examined Life, Episode 293, Part 2. We've been talking about Donna J. Haraway's Situated Knowledges, Cyborg Manifesto, we're kind of enmeshed in what this cyborg as a rhetorical device amounts to and what she thinks we're supposed to be able to get ethically out of that. So was it a matter of part of maybe the, from a practical standpoint, the God position would be the scientist as philosopher, as armchair philosopher, sort of surveying all and pursuing truth for truth's sake and this sort of thing, whereas when you actually are going to do something that is going to have effects on the world, perhaps a better way would be some sort of committee drawn from people who will be affected in different ways. I mean, is this sort of what, as a practical matter, it gets down to, you were just saying, not having all white guys in charge. Like, yeah, okay, as a practical matter, and this is sort of the theoretical, the long theoretical argument for why that is actually necessary and why, well, if there are wise enough white guys, if they can put aside their personal biases and be objective, then they should do fine. There's nothing, if Wes was here, he would say there's nothing epistemically off the table for anyone. And it's really a matter of being deliberate and thinking hard and learning from the mistakes that people have made in the past. So if this blindness to Application was something that, say, the people who were working on the bomb or something, I, I don't know. I mean, it seems they were in a secret location. They knew what they were working on. <laughs> but, you know, that's at least something that's brought to mind as something that we have now overcome. It still doesn't necessarily point to the necessity of having a particular gender identification, or it's unclear what somebody with such an ironic, subversive thinking style would actually add to this character that she's created of herself. Put that person on the board who's going to be one of the people who is deciding whether funding is going to be approved or
1: not. I think Haraway's going to say that women and people of color do need to be in the physics lab. Like you can't just have, you know, white guys who have taken the Haraway seminar doing it because that is somewhat of a God trick. Thinking you can escape the situation of your privilege, your upbringing, you know, the way you've been culturally conditioned, thinking you can escape that through method and achieve some sort of you know, perspective that's not grounded in that is a bit of a God trick. Bodies matter and I think she wants bodies of people of color and women in the lab at some level. And, and I don't think she thinks there's much hope for our science is being done differently until that happens.
2: And let's say more about what that difference is. Is it the problems that science is going to try to solve will be different or the conclusions that a science would come up with?
1: I don't think we can say now what they would be.
2: There are easy ones that you can imagine where this idea of skin in the game, and that's one thing that a localized perspective and more perspectives will get you is that people from their histories and their local experience will feel that skin in the game in a different way, right? So you could pick your litany of past biological or psychological research that's gone on that has used oppressed people in unethical ways, right? And you can say, well, if you'd included more people on the decision-making body, the people doing the science, that at the very least they would not have done the science in that way. Or another example would be the proliferation of medical research that had results that really only applied to men and missing very important biological distinctions in the behavior of medicines or whatever on women, or not paying attention to significant medical challenges that break along boundaries of race or gender and stuff like that, that they just don't rise to the top of being problems to be solved, that that would also change. And so all of those things make a lot of sense. One point would be is that that's all really important, but that's all, again, it's not the ways of doing science, and maybe this is where Haraway would just say, yes, of course, because the ways of doing science aren't any different than science. They're the same thing. You wouldn't get a different theory of an atom. That's like a hard one, right? You get a different theory of an atom because of I think this. she
1: thinks you might get a different theory of an atom. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I think she thinks if women had done physics instead of men.
2: Besides Marie Curie, right?
1: I guess if they had directed the research program, right?
2: There aren't that many, admittedly, but there yeah, are. You've you got the many. two
1: of them, so <laughs> nice work. So if they'd been in charge, you know, of whatever the equivalent of the Manhattan Project would be, a demilitarized Manhattan Project, I think Haraway would at least put a maybe by the notion that we would have a different theory of the atom.
2: And the case of Rosalind Franklin, even though she got far too little credit, but her pivotal role in the discovery of DNA as a woman scientist, I don't know how we interpret that as being a different effect? or
1: Well, and I picked physics because it's a hard case, right? I mean, this is why Haraway talks about the communication sciences and biology for the most part. Yeah, physics is really a tough case of imagining how you might have a different theory of an atom if science was done differently with cyborgs. But I think it's helpful to remember, she's talking about like also feminized people and not women necessarily. So it's anyone who's been left outside of the power structure. But I think it's helpful to remember that early on in, say, the experimentation of the Royal Society, there was this really interesting case where um, Joseph Priestley had this assistant, Anna, and he was starving mice of oxygen to test the principles of oxygen and So she famously wrote this little poem from the perspective of a mouse, and she taped it to the cage. So when he came in the next day, it was this plea from the mice to stop killing them Mm -hmm. in the search of his science, right? (laughs) And so this is a good example of this moment of protest by feminized agents, which include animals in this case, the mouse, right, is being spoken through here. It's like, hey, we don't really like losing our lives in service of this knowledge that you're generating. Could we find a different way to generate knowledge that does not come at the cost of my life, Mm -hmm. right? And so this is what Haraway is imagining. It's easy, as all those great examples you gave Dylan, to imagine how that would be done different in the biological sciences, the medical sciences. A little tougher to imagine how that might be done in physics. But I think it's safe to say, Haraway might say, like, could we do physics and not end up Hiroshima and Nagasaki?
3: Well, I'll say this, at the risk of imposing on this conversation between Linda and Dylan, maybe the equations wouldn't come out different, but maybe the metaphors that we use to describe those equations might be different. I can't even remember there was the bread pudding, the raisin, the bread pudding. The, and plum, you, pudding. Plum, the plum pudding. Plum pudding, sorry. Yeah. Oh yeah. I prefer bread pudding, so I guess that's why I said it. But it's possible that the metaphors might be different. And if we take seriously what we talked about in the previous episodes on Langer about symbolic language and symbolic representation, there's power in a metaphor. It's possible that changing the metaphors that we use to describe the things that we cannot see directly that we could potentially change the way that we talk about you know we talk about splitting an atom i don't know if that's a literal thing but if it even makes sense to talk about splitting an atom and releasing right these are words penetration right so there's people that
2: work on this language of physics in particular but science in general what
1: if it instead we said we were helping the atom consciously decouple <laughs>
2: I'm laughing about the consciously part because it was reminding me of a thing I want to bring up later from the first episode about the relative sort of the pan-consciousness aspect of this. There are words that are used like boil off is one that's maybe a little less phallic, right? To boil off atoms, boil off electrons.
1: Or what about, to push Seth's point farther, because I love where this is going, because it's going to get end us up in storytelling. Dylan, I had a physics student who told me that you could redescribe all the laws of thermodynamics with cold as the force instead of heat. Is that true? Could you just rewrite all of them as cold increases, et cetera, et cetera? Is it possible to just to reverse all the equations?
2: That may be true. The thing that's going to, to me, talk about heat versus cold, and the physics way of talking about it, cold is just relatively little decrease of the amount of heat you have. So the heat the
1: right but could you imagine it where cold is the force and then heat is the sink. The sun becomes a black hole, right? It's like <laughs> a giant suck for this giant suck for cold, you know?
2: The reason I I think it would be merely a formal direction mm. is because the heat is associated with more activity and motion and the cold is the direction of less and less motion. So you would have to Get over, I think, the substantial epistemological and ontological understanding that you're adding something when you're adding motion and that rest is something of a starting point.
1: Instead of stillness being a force, perhaps, yeah.
2: Indeed. You might productively think about it that way. That's why I say, yeah, maybe the equations work out in a formal way by using, he does the sacred cold of the source. To me, it goes contra to really, really deep localized experience. (laughs)
1: These are the kinds of thought experiments I think we start engaging in when we start thinking about, you know, Haraway's like, could we think differently about these things? And the reason why I was thinking about that, Dylan, is because I recently attended a conference on climate change. And there's this movement called the Right to Cold now the right to be cold and the right to cold. So Yupik people, people who live in the the Arctic circle, they're losing the right to be cold as a result of global warming. And so some of these tribal groups are actually suing the Canadian government, the US government for not intervening in climate change because they're losing. So cold to them has, has a positive cultural value. It's a positive force. And so I just started thinking about like, oh yeah, this is sort of like the social ramifications of like, what if we sort of redescribed everything where cold was the force, right? And and heat is the sink. Um, and so then we'd be sort of losing something in global warming. So that's just why I started thinking about it. But yeah, to follow on to Seth's point about metaphors.
0: If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to com slash support.
2: Thanks for listening.